Before Ryan preaches today, I'm going to read the text. It is from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for all of these names written in the genealogy of Jesus. Because in these names, what jumps off the page to us is despair and deceit and adultery, and murder, and stealing, and lying, and dysfunction, dysfunction in a family. But God, they were the family of the covenant, and you chose them. And through that, more than those things, more than that sin, we see your grace, a father that keeps his covenant, that is full of love, and is full of mercy and grace beyond what we can, what we can grasp and imagine even right now. God, thank you for the hope that is in that list of names, because we are just like them. We are the same. Our families are the same. And yet you come to us. You come to us full of grace and mercy and love. You have come to us. You are coming to us, and you will come to us. I pray that you will come to us now in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our depravity, and that your word will go out in truth and love and grace, and you will speak to our hearts today, and you will speak to our hearts always. Father, I pray that your word will be spoken through Ryan today, that his words will drift away to the side, and your name and your word will be proclaimed, that your grace and your truth will go forth and be made known. We thank you, Father, and send your holy, precious, full of grace name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're in a series of messages that we're calling King and Kingdom. And we've decided to take an approach toward Advent where we look at specifically the role of King Jesus and the role of his kingdom coming to earth. We said the image that is best to describe our role 
is that of a pilgrimage. So I have this suitcase in my hand. When you see someone with a suitcase, one thing comes into your mind, and it's this. They're not yet where they're going. They're not yet where they're going. So church, I want to encourage you as we look at this past, present function of the coming of Jesus Christ, that we embrace this pilgrimage that he's called us on because his kingdom has come. Jesus Christ was born. He was born of this family. Jesus Christ is among us. He has sent his spirit to dwell among us, to be a part of every moment of our lives, to redeem us, to speak to us, to apply his word to our hearts. And he is coming when he will reign in righteousness and in judgment, and we will fully see the face of Jesus, and sin will be eradicated. That is what is happening, and this is why we, 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 we hold up the suitcase to remind ourselves that we're not yet where we're going, but God is doing a work among us through his spirit today. And this, this absolutely changes everything about how we live and experience life today. I say this all the time, but, but what you think about the end of time right now affects how you live today. If we're waiting for the presence of God to be among us, then we, we might as well hole up and get in a bomb shelter and wait until Jesus comes. But if we believe that the Spirit of God is actually among us, that he dwells with us and in us, then we have hope for today. So the traditional themes of Advent are peace, hope, joy, and love. This week we're looking at hope. And I thought to myself, what better place in the Bible to look at hope for the church than the story of Jesus, the family of Jesus. Of all the ways that God could have redeemed the world, he chose to do it through a family. He chose to do it through a family. He chose to make Baron Sarah be able to have a child and for his people to come through Abraham and Sarah's relationship. He chose to save the world through a family. That's why I don't find it that all significant that Matthew starts his gospel with a genealogy, talking about the family. And if I'm just being honest with you, some of you know my story, some of you guys don't, but I've always kind of felt like a child without a story. And there's been a lot of things that have kind of caused that that, that line of thinking to accumulate in my mind and my heart. Part of it's just been the devastation of sin through divorce and, you know, your parents splitting up and all that kind of stuff. Some of you are with me and some of you are not with me. Some of you are like, man, I just love my family. I get to spend all the time with my family. It's a, it's a fantastic relationship. Some of you have a really rich family heritage. Uh, some of you don't have a very rich family heritage. All of my family now is kind of scattered throughout the United States for various reasons. My, my, all of my grandparents except one were deceased by the time I was 10. So when I get to hear some of you talk about your relationship with your grandparents and, and how you sit down with them and you play go fish with them on the carpet and they tell you about the good old days. I just, there's a part of me that's like, man, what would that be like uh, to be able to have that relationship with my grandparents? And so, you know, this week I decided to go on a little journey. Now, I didn't spend the whole week on Ancestry.com, I promise. I've heard about people that do that, but I just went on a little journey. I did some research about just my family heritage and where we came from. So, for instance, I saw the census records in the mid to late 1800s of like my great-great-grandparents, and I saw that, I saw that in their, in, late in life that they never owned a home, that they didn't have a high school education, and on my dad's side anyway, and, and that my, my grandfather, my great-great-great-grandfather was a farmer, and my great-great-great-grandmother was a seamstress. And so as I saw that handwriting document right there with those, with those facts about their life, I just started to wonder, what was life like that? 
What, was it, what would it be like to, to live that way? What, what was life like for them? And now on my, on my mom's side, I found some really interesting things. I, I looked around enough to find out that, that we have a legend in our family. <laughs> now, some of you, when you think about having a legend in your family, you're, you're like, you have this very prideful kind of tone of this president that was in your family or this really, you know, just noble person. Well, we found in my family that Jesse James came from our family. <laughs> if you know anything about Jesse James, uh, he kind of was like this Robin Hood kind of a guy that, that, that robbed from the rich and allegedly gave to the poor. And he wasn't the brightest, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, but one of his own gang members ended up taking his life. So if you guys wonder why I am the way that I am, I can just say I just was born into it. You know, what am I going to do? So for better or worse, though, our families are our families. Are they not? They're our families. We can't do anything to change it. We couldn't do anything to be born into a different family. And for that reason, I find it very significant that Jesus is born into this family. This family has a story. This family that has a history. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this right here. For he will save his people from their sins. I want you to notice the possessive pronoun that's used to describe what Jesus has come to do. For he will save whose people? His people from his sins. Do you find it significant that maybe, you know, Matthew's just mentioned the genealogy? Jesus came to save people from their sins, but specifically in this context, his people. So as we delve into this passage right here, my hope is that you'll never see a genealogy as kind of a hopeless waste of time again. That's my hope. The big idea of where we're going today is this, is that King Jesus brings hope into hopeless situations. So let's look at the gravitas of Jesus' genealogy. The first one is this, the significance of, of story. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 has, has been a, a passage of scripture that I often look back to to remind me about the word of God and its importance. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says this all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we're looking at the canon of Scripture, that this, what this tells us is that there's nothing that's meaningless in here. So I don't know about you, but if you do one of those things where you read through the Bible in a year or you get a daily devotional in your email or whatever, and you land on one of these genealogies of the book of Numbers, what's our, what's our tendency to do? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna skip. What's on tomorrow? I'm going to check that out instead. We don't want to read all these names. But as Megan said earlier, these names, every single one of these people, these names are significant because they all have a story. And their story plays into the redemption of, of God's people. There's a significance behind it. And, I, and, and here's, here's an issue, and I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think it's going to be good uh, for us to hear. Um, I think our tendency when we read the scriptures is to go to the word and to say this, to read something, to, to immediately say, how does this apply to me? We, we try to jump straight to application. And so if we find something in scripture that we think, ah, oh, this doesn't apply to me, we just throw it out. I, I would propose that if we really dig into the areas of Scripture where it doesn't seem like they as adequately apply to us or as quickly apply to us, that, that by God's grace, His Spirit will make the Scripture apply at a deeper level than we could have ever imagined. So if you find yourself in your personal worship time reading a part of the Bible and you're like, man, I just really, 
I just don't get this. This doesn't apply to me. And you want to throw it out. I just want to challenge you to, t- to ask yourself a question. Can I go deeper with this? Can I look further into this? Can I wrestle with this? And, and I pray that, that you and myself, when we, when we come up on texts like this, maybe it's a genealogy, whatever it is, that we would take it with the approach that we would wrestle with it. Like Jacob wrestled with God. And we would say, God, I want you to bless me with this word today because this is in your scripture for a reason. For instance, we know that the authorial intent, so every, every, every author of the Bible, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, every author has, a, has an intended audience. And when we read the scriptures, our first goal is to think about the intended audience of who's receiving this letter or this scripture. It's not the first to say, how does this apply to me? But it's the first to say, how did this apply to them? And so what we know about Matthew is that Matthew's gospel was written to Jewish people. That Matthew's intention was to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the king of God's people, and to also show that he was a different kind of Messiah than what they would expect. So Matthew's, if you've done any looking into the different genealogies about Jesus, there's one that Luke writes, one that Matthew writes, they are slightly different the closer you get to Jesus. And some people think, oh, the Bible's not reliable. I would propose that Matthew is writing in light of this, this legal claim to Jesus taking the throne. Where Luke, you know, the doctor, is writing about a biological genealogy. How did Jesus come through Mary? Whereas Matthew is looking at his legal claim to the throne because Matthew's whole goal is to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the king. And so that's why he writes the way that he writes. Is it inaccurate? Is one more accurate than the other? No, they're both true. They're just written from different perspectives. So as we delve into this, I want you to see the fingerprint of God redeeming sinners through this whole thing. Justo Gonzalez says it this way, the Bible tells the story of God's revelation in the life and history of the people of God. Without the story, it is impossible to know the revelation. So for us guys, the important thing for us is to look into the story and the whole entire Old Testament is pointing toward this story, it's telling this story. And as we delve into this story, we see the gospel more clearly. We see the grace of God more clearly. So that's why we delve in and we're looking backwards into this story this week. And that's been my prayer, that we'd be open up to the, to the genealogy of Jesus for the fact of seeing the character of God in redeeming sinners. So secondly, we move on to talk about the revelation of grace in this story. While I'd love to look at every single person from Jeconiah to Zerubbabel, I'm particularly going to look at the, probably the most unique people that are in this genealogy. Now, in a Jewish genealogy, rarely would you find women in the genealogy. It's just not what the Jewish people did. Well, in this genealogy, we see four women. And if you count Mary, five. So there's a significance to what's going on there. You think about the women that are included, too. So here's who you don't have. You don't have Sarah and Rebecca. Okay, you would expect, okay, maybe they'd be in the genealogy. But instead, you've got Tamar, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth, you've got the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba, and you've got Mary. Very interesting choices. And why are they in there? Well, all four have some past connection to sexual immorality. I found that really interesting. And even more than that, all four of them had Gentile connections. So Matthew, he's making a point to the Jewish people. The kingdom is broader than you think that it is. Jesus is a different kind of king than you're expecting. Get ready for him. So we see that, you know, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, and Ruth was a Moabite, and Uriah's wife was married to a Hittite. So the message of this genealogy is clear. The kingdom is broader than you think it is. I love what Martin Luther said about Jesus' genealogy. He says this, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, 
He even puts them in his family tree. And I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful for that. I'm really thankful that Jesus is the kind of Savior that extends grace to people like me. So as I said, I'd like to look at everybody, but I'm going to look at three particular people this week. I want to look at Tamar, I want to look at Rahab, and I want to look at Ruth. And we're going to look a little more deeply. I'm going to summarize some of the scripture because we don't have time to go there and read, you know, four or five chapters of each one. I'm going to summarize them. We're going to look at them today. So first, let's look at Tamar. Uh, Tamar, Matthew 1.3, the genealogy says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, at first glance, it's like, okay, that's cool, whatever, right? But there's something that's wrong with this picture. Uh, Jacob's son is Judah, the patriarch that had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So a woman named Tamar married Ur, one of the sons, but then Ur died. So it leaves her a widow. Now, widows in Jewish culture are to be cared for. They're not just thrown to the curb. They're to be cared for. And I think this is one of the reasons why James makes such a claim that that's what true religion is in James 1.27. It's to care for orphans and widows. This is a a part of Jewish culture. This is what you do. So since it was required that the next of kin care for a brother's widow, Tamar was given to Onan. Well, she's got some bad luck because you know what happens to Onan? He dies as well. So Shelah was still a boy, and he wasn't able to marry Tamar. He was too young. So Judah asked her to return to her father's house and wait until Shelah was grown up. However, once Shelah was old enough, here's where where the problem comes right here, as as if the other things weren't problems. Judah didn't honor his promise. He didn't didn't come through with what he said he was going to do. So Tamar remains an unmarried widow. So what do you think began to happen to Tamar, to her heart, during this season? She felt a little left out, right? She probably began to get a little bitter that the promise didn't come to her. Bitterness began to swell inside of her. And so she decides, instead of trusting God's plan, she decides to take things into her own hands. So here's her plan. Tamar, who's Judah's daughter-in-law, then goes into town and she disguises herself as a prostitute. All goes down south from here, right? She tricks Judah and she gets him to sleep with her. Well... What happens when you do something like that? Well, you end up getting pregnant by Judah, your father-in-law, and she bears two twins. You know what their names are? Perez and Zerah. This is Jesus' family. And you thought your family was messed up, right? This is Jesus' family. The story is significant. Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus is significant. There's room for people like Tamar in the family of God. It doesn't stop there. Let's go on to Rahab. Matthew 1.5. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. So this story is found in Genesis chapters 2 through 6. So the Israelites are finally allowed to take hold of their promised land after they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So before God gives the land into their hand, Joshua sends out two spies to scope out the city of Jericho because the fortress of Jericho has to be taken down for them to get into the promised land. The two spies go into the city. They're probably pretty intimidated, I can imagine. There's two of them. There's like thousands of those that are in Jericho. So a a Gentile prostitute named Rahab ends up housing the spies while they're scoping out Jericho. So she brings them into their house. Hey, she sees these two men kind of wandering around, kind of being a little discreet. She says, hey, come in here, guys. She brings them into her house. So she's hospitable to those spies that are in the city. She hides them up on her roof under some thatch because the king of Jericho gets word that there's spies in the town. So what's the king do when he gets word that there's spies in the town? 
Let's go find the spies. Let's do whatever it takes. Let's get them out of here. Let's get these guys out of our city. And so she hides them under there. And in exchange for this risky action, the men promise to spare Rahab when the conquest of Jericho happens. They make a promise to her. So during the conquest, they tell Rahab to hang a scarlet rope out of her window, which signifies to the Israelites that her house should be passed over. So much like Passover when they put blood on the doorpost, the scarlet rope signified the fact, pass over this house. Pass, I'm sparing these people here. I'm, the, the whole city's going down, but this family, this, this family's okay. Now, you would think that of all the families that God would spare in the city of Jericho, that a prostitute would be the last one, right? It's not who God is. So during this time, Rahab comes to faith in God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. And she would marry and finally become a literal bride to an Israelite. And it's just really interesting, her story. So Joshua 2, 9 through 11 says this. I'll read it for you. I know that the Lord, this is, Ra- uh, this is Rahab talking to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. They've heard rumors. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were beyond the Jordan, to, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, listen to this, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab makes this declaration of faith. And the interesting thing we're going to look at in a few minutes about Rahab is her significant past. That she would be able to come, she'd be invited and ushered into the family of God. Rahab's past didn't disqualify her future. There are some of you in here that really need to hear that today. That your past doesn't have to disqualify your future. That in turning to Jesus Christ, that our sins are actually they're, they're washed away, we're covered by the grace of God. That we can have new life in Jesus, and we can, we can rest, we can be secure in the promises of God. And lastly, let's look at Ruth. Ruth, Matthew 1, 5, and 6. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. See, Boaz in there. We saw Boaz in the person we looked at before. So here the story continues. So Rahab's uh, is Ruth's mother-in-law, and Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. King David, his lineage, he comes from this lineage. And the king was a king that was after God's own heart. That's what we said last week, is that what God was interested in in the king was the position of his heart. Not the might of his hands. But the position of his heart, how soft he was toward the Lord and to God's covenant promises and to his trust and faith in the Lord. So what's significant about Ruth? Well, Ruth was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And not just a Gentile, but Ruth was a Moabite Gentile. So before you tune me out right here, we're going to talk about the Moabites. Because you need to know about the Moabites because there's more grace here than you can see. So who are the Moabites? Well, in, we read in Genesis 12... Through 18, I'll make this as quick as I can. Uh, we read about the Moabites. <laughs> Meet the family, the Moabites. Let me just say this. At a family function, you know, sometimes when your, your house is really full, you might, to make room for everyone, you might put a couple tables out in the garage for people to eat out there. The Moabites would have definitely been in the garage at the family functions, okay? 
The Moabites weren't, peop weren't people that were sought after. People didn't want to be around the Moabites. And here's why. The Moabites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. So God calls Abraham, and Abraham takes his family with him uh, to the land that God's going to show him. This includes Lot, his nephew. And Abraham, he lets, when they come down into the promised land, he says, okay, Lot, you take your choice. You want to go to the right or left? Go wherever you want. Because they can't fit all their livestock in the same like valley or whatever, so they have to split up. So Lot says, hey, I'm going to go over here. And, and, and he, goes, he goes into this place that's basically uh, in the Jordan Valley, which would include the cities, you've heard of these before, of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the place that he chose to go. So keep in mind, I don't know that he knows much about who Sodom and Gomorrah are, what their history is, but you and I know that Sodom and Gomorrah are despicable cities to, to the Lord. I mean, they're just utterly sinful cities. So it's so bad in Sodom that God sends two angels to rescue Lot's family. It's gotten out of hand. And men of the city try to have a sexual relationship with the angels. And so God sends Lot and his family out of the city of Zoar. I mean, this is dark. This is in the Bible. He sends them out of the city. And, and on the way to Zoar, before God destroys Sodom, because he's going to destroy it because it's so sinful, Lot's wife disobeys, disobeys the command, and she looks back when she's not supposed to at Sodom. And she immediately turns into a pillar of salt. So this leaves Lot in a particularly interesting place. There were four of them. Now there are three of them. There's him, and then there's his two daughters. Are you seeing where this is going here? They end up finding a place to live in a cave in Zoar. They're probably terrified. And the daughters become insecure about the future of their family. And so one night, very similar to the story of Tamar, they get Lot drunk on two consecutive nights, and each of them ends up having a child. The first daughter that has a relationship with her dad when he's intoxicated that night, they have a son, and his name? Moab. These are the Moabites. So Ruth is a Moabite. This is Ruth's family tree. So how does she come into this family tree of the Moabites? So years later in Bethlehem, there's this nice Jewish family that has a problem. A famine hits Bethlehem. Okay, when a famine hits your city, you can either stay there and you can try to make it and you can probably die or you can leave and go somewhere else. So what happens here is a famine hits Bethlehem and it forces Elimelech and his bride, Naomi, who is the main character in the, the story of Ruth, to move to a place that they can find food. So against their wishes, they head to Moab to survive. I mean, out of all the places they could have went, I, I have to imagine that you know, when Elimelech breaks the news to Naomi that we're headed to Moab, she's got to be like, man, I'd just rather stay in Bethlehem and die. I mean, I, who wants to go to Moab? I don't want to go to Moab. And so she's probably kind of reluctant, and I'm, I'm, just, yeah, I'm just guessing here that that might be the posture of her heart in dealing with this. So they, so they go to Moab. Well, they're sons. They have, they have a couple sons, and they, they marry two. They're there for probably around 10 years or so. They marry two local Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. So one by one, things get bad in Moab. The first is that Elimelech and both of his sons die. So here we are. We had, we had three couples, right? They're all married. They're happy. Living in Moab, things could be better, but at least they're eating. Things get bad. All of the men die. This is a problem, right? There are three widows. How are they going to feed themselves? How are they going to live? So we read this in Ruth 1, 15 through 17. And she... Naomi was speaking to Ruth, says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
return after your sister-in-law. So she's trying to encourage her to go back. But Ruth replies with this right here, and maybe you've heard this verse before. Maybe you've seen it on a card or a coffee mug or something like that. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So God was doing this special relationship through Naomi. The significance of what was happening with Ruth and with Naomi. It was, it was a gospel-bearing relationship. Ruth comes to faith through her mother-in-law's faith. It's this amazing story, and then, the, the, then all the men die. So Orpah returns to her old ways, and she doesn't conform to belief in the Jewish God of the Bible. So Ruth, on the other hand, wants to follow. So Ruth and Naomi take the long trip back up to Bethlehem. So as they get into Bethlehem, which is Naomi's hometown, she's coming back home, things seem to go from bad to even worse when they're in Bethlehem. So Ruth and Naomi are in Bethlehem, and there's these two widows, and they're very poor. And now Naomi's probably become a little bit, you can even read some of the tones when you read the book of Ruth that She's probably grown a little bit bitter because when she came back to Bethlehem, people saw her differently. When she left, she had a husband and two sons. When she came back, she had a daughter-in-law, two dead sons, and a dead husband. And not only did she have a daughter-in-law, but she, did she have a Jewish daughter-in-law? She had a Moabite daughter-in-law. So she's coming back home, ah, back in Bethlehem. All of a sudden, people are seeing her differently. They don't see her in the same light that they once saw her. And so things are really tough for them. They're so poor that they are gleaning the edges of fields. So they're taking the crops from the edges of the fields that the farmers would leave. And that's how they're surviving. Ruth is out there tirelessly working, trying to feed herself and her mother-in-law. And then she one day meets the rich owner of a field who has shown her grace. His name? Boaz. That's a cool name, right? Boaz. Ruth 2, 10 through 11. We'll wrap this up right here. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, this is Ruth speaking to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I'm a Moabite. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So what's he seeing in her? He's seeing the gospel in her. That's what he's seeing in her. He's seeing the grace of God in her. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. And Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer of the family. He's the kinsman redeemer that will redeem the family, that will secure the family line. And this is the family that Jesus is born into. This is how the gospel works. We're all spiritual sojourners. We're all poor in spirit. We all don't have two spiritual nickels to rub together. And God sends our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, to the earth. And this is the genealogy that we're reading about how he came to be. Are you getting the picture of the story and lineage of Jesus and what that means for us? Are you, getting, are you beginning to get what this means for us? So let's lastly look at this. Let's look at the application. What does this really mean for us? How does this give us hope today? Remember the big idea that King Jesus brings hope to hopeless situations. The story of Jesus includes people and sin that we'd never care to wish upon anyone at all. 
We don't want these things to happen to anyone. We don't want, we, we don't want women to become widows when their husbands die. We don't want to be taken away into foreign lands. We don't want any of those things to happen, but they happen. And the question is, where's God in the middle of it? And can I have hope in the middle of those situations? I want you to listen to the character of Jesus from Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, underline that confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. With this in mind, we find hope from the person of who Jesus is. So let's look at our past hope. We have freedom from a past life of sin. So I think that the story of Rahab is a beautiful story. All of their stories are stories like this. That though we have sin in our life, and we all have sin in our lives, some of us in the room, every day when we wake up, we are overwhelmed with the sin that we've committed in our lives. And we struggle to think that God really loves us the same as someone who seems to be walking righteously with him. If the story of Rahab doesn't convince you otherwise, then, then I don't know what will. I, I recently, well not recently, probably five years ago, I heard the president of the Church Planning Network we're a part of, Matt Chandler, tell a story, and I'll share it with you because I think it illustrates the story of Rahab really perfectly. He, he and a couple of his friends, they were, they were in college they met a young woman named Kim, and they invited her to this gospel concert because they wanted her to hear, she wasn't a believer, they wanted her to hear the good news of Jesus, and they thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity. We'll invite Kim, she'll hear the gospel, it'll, it'll, it'll curate some conversation that we can have centered around the gospel. And so they invited her to this gospel concert, and what began to ensue at the concert was somewhat of a train wreck about what the gospel actually is. Some of these concerts, the pastor will get up and he'll share you know, like a homily or a sermon or something like that for the people to hear that are at the concert. The preacher gets up on the stage, and he, he's talking about sexual purity. And he takes a rose out of his jacket pocket, and he has the rose up in his hand. And he begins to ask people, hey, what do you think about this rose? And they're all like, oh, the rose is so beautiful. It's, it's so perfect. Uh, we love the rose. And so he begins, then he, then he takes the rose out, and he hands it to someone in the crowd, and, and he says, I want you to pass the rose around, smell it, really really get a glimpse of what this rose actually is, and, 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 and how it smells, and what it looks like, and so there, there's like a thousand people in the room, so they pass it around, like everybody gets a little touch as he's talking. Uh, he gave, you know, a lot of statistics about STDs, and there's, you know, a lot of just things, explicit things that he talked about, and, and his big illustration was to bring that rose back up on the stage, and he began, and of course, the rose comes back to him, and what does the rose look like? It's mangled, right? I mean, it's like wilted over, he can't, he can't even, he has to like piece it together, and he gets up, and he says, who would want this rose? Who, who would want this? Look at this. This thing is despicable. Who would want this? And Matt says that he began to just kind of sink on the inside, because he knew that Kim's story was that rose, It was all mangled. It was all beat up by life. That had done things she never cared to share with anyone. That she was looking for, for hope. And so they leave that night. It's a bit awkward. And the big message they walked away with is basically a message of hopelessness for them. Now, did he say some meaningful things about being sexually pure? Yes. But there was no grace for the sinner. That's the problem. 
And so Matt didn't hear from Kim for a few weeks. And about three weeks later, he gets a phone call from her mom. And, and Kim has been in this a very serious car accident. She's in the hospital. And so when Matt finds out, he immediately goes to the hospital. And they're having some conversation there. And in the middle of the conversation, the conversation kind of breaks. And she says, Matt, do you think, you think I'm a dirty rose? And he begins to tell about the grace of Jesus for people like Kim, for people like Rahab. And he says, you know, Kim, you know who wants the rose? Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. So I'll say this to you today. It doesn't matter what has made you the dirty rose. Some of you, it may be a lifestyle of sexual promiscuity. It may be a life of greed or deceit. Maybe a number of things. But I want to tell you this. If Jesus' genealogy, if his story gives us any hope, it's that Jesus loves people like you and me, loves dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. And it's not because there's anything lovely to find inside of us, but it's simply because he loves us. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent who introduced sin into the world by justly dealing with our filthy sin, by nailing it on the cross, so that he could present you and I to our Heavenly Father as perfect, spotless. We don't have any blemishes anymore to our Father. This is how he presents us to the Father. Now, it's not that that, those sins weren't true of us. It's that, that those sins have been paid for. That's the difference. So where's our present hope? It's freedom to humbly embrace a life of obscurity. You know, I think we all want a a legacy. I've never met a person in my life before who doesn't want a life that's significant, that doesn't want to be noticed by other people. But the problem is we think that it's up to us to prove our existence. We think it's up to us to show ourselves to the world. But when we look at Jesus... We see when, when, when Jesus was calling his disciples, there's this, there's this kind of discussion between Philip and Nathaniel. <laughs> and Nathaniel, I, I think it's Nathaniel that's talking to Philip, and he's like, you know, he's telling him about Jesus. And, and Philip says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity so that you and I could be free to live in obscurity as well because we don't have to find our worth and our identity from things that we do. But we find our worth and our identity through who God has made us and that he has called us to himself. We couldn't go to God. He had to come to us. This is why John 1.14, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. We didn't go to God. He came to us and he loved us. This is the the whole story of Jesus' birth. And lastly, we have this future hope, this confidence in King Jesus' sovereign control without any type of anxiety. So in the story of Ruth, it seemed like setback after setback, didn't it? I mean, it was like one setback. You're like, man, this story can't get any worse than it is right now. And it just kept getting worse. So we're free not to control his work, but free to trust and to look forward to him. That he is our kinsman redeemer. When all seems hopeless, he is the one that will redeem. He is the one that has given us hope. And because of this, we're free to live life without anxiety. Because God knows exactly what's going on in your life right now. He knows exactly the things that you're struggling with, and he's right in the midst of it with you. If you, by faith, believe in Jesus, he's right in the midst of it with us.
So I hope that you have, this morning, I hope that you've seen the genealogy of Jesus is a, is a story about grace for people who don't deserve it. And you and I find ourselves in that story as well. Not deserving the grace of God, but God just lavishing his love and his grace on us in spite of who we are because of his great love. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that we as a people have hope and that hope isn't founded on us. Father, I pray for those in the room today that, that honestly, they feel like Ruth, they feel like Rahab, they feel like Kim in the illustration that I shared, that they just feel insignificant. I pray that you would give them a confidence, give us, because that's me, give us a confidence to trust in your character and in your love and your grace for us that we wouldn't go searching for it in other places, that we'd find it solely in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.